We have two scripture readings um, this morning. Um, the first from Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Second reading is from Second Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I hope you listen to that story in Exodus because there's going to be a test. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to actually go into that story, so I had her read it at the beginning to provide a little bit of a context for where the text is this morning. Like she said, it's Second Corinthians 3.18, so if you want to open to Second Corinthians, that's where we're going to be a lot. Um, we're going to go back and forth through a couple of those books. So good morning. Again, my name is Matt Adams. I'm filling in for Pastor Dave. I want to give a little more context to the sermon, though, this morning. So we're going to back up to verse 4 in chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 4 to 18. And we're going to look at how Paul is comparing the old covenant that he made, that God made with Israel, and the new covenant that we're under today. All right, so I'm going to begin reading in 3, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but by the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That law, that old covenant, was only meant to bring the knowledge that a person is disobeying a holy God. Romans 3.20 It condemns you to death. Number, verse 7 Now if the ministry of death, Paul calls the old covenant the law, the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, it was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Yet it was so glorious at its presentation that people saw it as intensely wonderful. Think about those Old Testament kings, right? Who read this glorious law to their people. The psalmist declared, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. This is a, a law that was bringing death. This law was glorious because 
It was given by God. So Paul continues, if this law is so glorious, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed that in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory to those who received it, the Israelites, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, the gospel. We could go home right now. That's, that's the sermon right there. The, the, that law, we barely even look at it. We, we almost despise it. We know it as the ministry of death. It has no glory for us. Because of the covenant that has come that has surpasses it is so much more glorious. Verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end, the law, came with such glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, Jews, unbelievers, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. If you don't have Christ, you have a veil. Christ alone unveils unbelievers, enabling them to see His glory. Not our works, not our faith, simply Christ. 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In our text this morning. And we, those who are free, those who are in the spirit, those who have believed in Christ, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image that is Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. May God bless the reading of His Word. Father, we want to behold Your glory this morning. Would You reveal it to us? Would You show us more of You in this Word this morning? Would You show us how glorious You are? We, we know it in a sense, but God, we are all going from one degree of glory to the next. Would You give us another degree of glory this morning? Would You make us more like Christ a little bit more as a result of seeing you clearer this morning. Holy Spirit, come here now and grant freedom to those who are still under the law, who are still being condemned, who still have a veil. God, would you lift up their veil, open their eyes so they can see how glorious you are. Amen. Okay, as you can see, I'm getting, I was excited about this text because I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is, there's so much here. Obviously, I cannot even come close to digging in here. I told my wife, it's like, you know, you're going to preach on this mine quarry. You show up at the mine and there's like 
six tunnels of, of mines that they're digging down and you're supposed to talk about each one Will you open the first door and it goes down and there's gold. And Well, i got to keep digging and keep digging in this first tunnel. And I, How do I ever get up? And now you're buried down there in the gold looking for gold and you forget about the rest and you have to come back out and start talking about the other ones. And ah, So... I'm going to try to talk about this mine quarry without going too far down and getting buried. So there's so many elements of what Paul is saying here. We're going to focus on four um, in the last chapter, or in the, in the last verse, which is 18. I want to draw out four major themes for us this morning. All unveiled faces, by beholding His glory, are becoming like Christ because of the Spirit. Number one, all unveiled faces. This is where Paul starts. And I want to point out here, just like Mike said, when we look at a book, we find out who's, who is it written to, right? It was written to the Corinthians. But um, Paul broadens that. He includes. He always is saying, we. He's not just saying you. He's saying we. He's talking about us as believers, okay? He's talking about people with unveiled faces. He's actually drawing a line here. He's saying there are two kinds of people. People with veils and people without. Look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3.7 The Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. The Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. The Israelites were literally unable to continue looking at Moses' face. It's not that they didn't want to. It says they were unable. Moses was forced to veil his face because of the glory that was emanating from his being. Feeble humanity, apart from Christ, is unable apart from the Spirit's regenerating work, is unable to even view the smallest amounts of God's glory. While the glory in Exodus is a physical glory that's physically blinding the onlookers, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is using that physical reality um, to draw a spiritual analogy, to compare the glory of the Old Covenant with the, with the glory of this new covenant of grace that we're under now. So he uses that physical reality to talk about a spiritual one. And if this new covenant is so much more glorious than we can fathom, and the Israelites couldn't even gaze upon that old covenant's glory, then it makes perfect sense that unregenerate people are not able to see the glory of Jesus. Paul illustrates that in the previous chapter, chapter 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who is who in Christ and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Do you know when you go to work, when you live out in the world, when you go to the mechanic, you are spreading the fragrance of Christ. The knowledge of Him, which we're going to find out is the glory, His glory. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, 
were a fragrance from death to death, and the other were a fragrance from life to life. I had a perfect example of this. I was preparing this sermon. My coworker came up to me because I was at work. He looked over my shoulder. What are you doing? I said, oh, I'm preparing my sermon for Sunday. I said, you're welcome to come. I know you know that, but I would love to have you there. Oh, man, are there smoke detectors in that place? Because uh, I think it's, I don't know if I can handle it. He was, goes on joking for about 15 minutes. He went to the other side of the room and he continued to talk about it. It made him so uncomfortable. You know why? Because it wasn't the fragrance of life. It was the fragrance of death. And he joked about it, but it was real. You know, you've talked to somebody about God. There is an intense feeling that happens when you start to share the gospel. And it is either the fragrance of death or it's the fragrance of life. So the glory of God is a stench to those who are perishing. It's the smell of death. Like a fire to a piece of wood, it will consume it. But to us, fire is warmth and food. We, as believers, smell that sweet fragrance. We see Jesus as beautiful. So we wonder, why can't my friend see Jesus as beautiful? Well, just imagine a person blindfolded in a large room. They can see absolutely nothing. Pitch blackness. And everywhere they walk, boom, they smash into things. Their eyes are poked. They're bumbling around. They crack their shins. They bump their head. They wander around looking for the light switch. Where's the lights? Come on. Who did this? Who put me in this room? Who blindfolded me? What's going on? Darkness, pain, anger, disorientation. They, how could they think this is a good creator? But meanwhile, you're standing in the room with no blindfold. You can see perfectly. Looking around this beautiful castle-like cathedral with murals painted on the walls and ceilings and sculptures and antiques all around. All the trimmings are sculpted out of gold and there's diamonds and rubies embedded in all of the work. It's the most exquisite room you've ever seen. While you're enjoying this magnificent view and this magnificent room, the other person is stumbling around, cursing the designer. That's what it's like for us to have the veil removed. We are able to see the glories all around us. And like Andy Wilson says, we are given the ability to enjoy that gift. Yes, He has given us the room, but He has also given us the sight to enjoy the room. He's lifted our veil and we are able to see the glory of God. This knowledge should enable us to have far greater patience with our co-workers or our unbelieving friends because we know there is a veil over their eyes and they're simply unable to see the glory of God. But believer, this is cause for rejoicing. All unveiled faces by beholding His glory are becoming like Christ because of the Spirit. 
Number two, by beholding His glory. Let's go back to our text, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord in this verse literally means to gaze as looking in a mirror. Okay? It's not a, it's not like a quick glance and check. You know, Mike in Sunday school stole like half my analogies and, but that's great. It's just amazing how the spirit works. So he talked about looking in a mirror this morning and it's not like we check our, our face when we're leaving for work or whatever. It's, it's gazing in the mirror or it's not like me where I look in the mirror about once a week if I'm lucky. No, we're staring at God's glory. If you'll notice, it doesn't say we're supposed to look at it or we're commanded to look at it. It says we are beholding His glory, which means His glory is always out in front of us. We are seeing it. We're in that room with our eyes wide open. If we are, as believers, beholding God's glory, which we are, specifically Christ's glory, we should know what it is. Since I'm not an expert, I turned to an expert, and you probably can guess who I turned to. No, I tried a bunch of people, but honestly, Piper just comes up with the best stuff, man. God gives him an amazing vision into the Bible. It is just wonderful. So, if you want to see how he explains this, it's much better on his website, so go there. John Piper says this, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, um, not quote it, um, just to give us an example of how he defines the glory of God. Defining the glory of God is impossible, because it's more like defining the word beauty than the word basketball. Okay? A basketball, we can describe to someone, we can tell them what shape it is and what it looks like and what color it is, what it's made out of, and then when they see one bouncing down the court, they can point to it and say, ah, that's what you were talking about. Beauty is not like that. You can't just describe it. You have to physically point and say, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. And then we all can come to an understanding of what we are meaning by the word beauty. So it is with the word glory. It's difficult to define. But it's important. So we need to try and define it, right? We can't leave it for people to make up on their own. We've seen what that hap- what, what that looks like, right? Just Google glory on YouTube and you can probably go nuts watching glory clouds and gold dust and all kinds of awesome stuff. So, Piper takes the glory of God and contrasts it biblically with the word holy. Okay, And he asks this, what is the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God? So, Piper answers, the holiness of God is his being in a class by himself. Right? He, in his perfection, his greatness, his worth, he's distinct, he's separate from us. Right? As God, he is that which is Nobody else. He's unlike anything else. His quality cannot be improved upon. It can't be imitated. It is incomparable. Now, when we get to Isaiah 6.3, the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
What's the next thing they say? No, good. The whole earth is full of His glory. They they just said holy. They they should say His holiness. He doesn't say your holiness. He says glory. Intrinsically holy. Intrinsically holy. God, you are holy, and the whole earth is full of your glory. So if this is... So from this, Piper stabs at a definition. He says, The glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. It's the going public of His holiness. It is the way He puts His holiness on display for the world to apprehend. I like that. This is what you write down, okay? The glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. The glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. David Wilkerson simply puts it like this. God's glory is a revelation of His nature and His attributes. It's not gold dust falling from the ceiling during an intoxicating time of free worship. It's not an ecstatic feeling or some kind of supernatural aura. The glory of God is a revelation of God's attributes, namely His holiness. It's the revealing of who God is. When God is revealed, His glory is on display. So there is a physical aspect to God's glory, like when He shows up, right? And Moses becomes a glow stick. But primarily to us, it's a spiritual revelation. It's seeing and knowing God, which is revealing Him and His nature and His attributes. Take a look at John 7.39. There are a million verses. Once you see this, it's like biblical theology. Once you see this, you start looking at every verse about glory and it's like, whoa, this is cool. I really get a better picture of what this verse means. Again, it's really hard to define, but this gives us a really great idea. John 7.39, Lazarus... Oh no, this is the next one. Um, this, Jesus says, the Spirit was not given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was not yet glorified. What? Jesus was there. People saw Him. He was walking around, talking to everybody, but they didn't have a true grasp of who He was and what He was sent to do because He hadn't revealed His glory to them. It wasn't until after His resurrection, after His glorification, that He truly started to reveal Himself to people. Then, look at Jesus told Mary before Lazarus died that um, Lazarus was going to die for the glory of God, right? And that's, that's so confusing. Why? But it makes complete sense because if God is being revealed, that's the glory. It's for His glory. It's for His revelation. John eleven forty. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? That is, you would see God revealed. Jesus is revealing Himself in His timing, little by little. 
And this is how we as people give glory to God. When we reveal to the world who God is by our worship, by our lifestyle, by our words and our actions, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever we do, reveal God. Put Him on display. Show the world who He is. Now that we're believers, the veil is lifted. We are beholding the glory of God, which is the holiness of God made manifest. Three, we are becoming like Christ. Paul continues in 18. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What image? I say Christ here, but is that just the Sunday school answer? No. <laughs> Look at 4.4. Paul is speaking to the people with veils over their faces, but he reveals what, what image they can't see. And it's still the same train of thought from the whole context I read. They, you know, they, whoever stuck the chapters in loves to just insert them in there, you know, but Paul's still in the same thought process here in, in 4. And he says, to keep them from seeing Christ who is the image of God. So the image of God is Christ. And this is the image that we are all being conformed into together. This is discipleship. This is becoming like Christ and helping others become more like Christ. The simple truth is that all believers are on the path of sanctification. Once a person is saved, once the veil has been removed, and a person can see the glory of God, they are becoming more like Christ. It's a fact. It's simply true. The reason is this. When the veil is lifted, we see new things all around us. We see creation and the Word and people differently. We see God in a new way, in a more glorious way. He is lovely and perfect to us now. And before, He wasn't. We're given the knowledge of the best thing and we're given the gift to choose the best thing before we weren't. We weren't even able to choose the best thing and we didn't even know what the best thing was. And now, we aren't able to choose otherwise because our desires have changed. In fact, this process is evidence of true conversion. When someone says they have been born again and then nothing changes in their life, that's evidence that they have not seen the glory of God. Christ hasn't been revealed to them. They haven't seen Him as lovely. Because when you see something as lovely and perfect and the best thing, that's what you want. That's what you want to be like. There's a principle at work. That is, what you behold, you become like. Right? And since with unveiled faces, we are beholding the glory of God, logically and factually, we are becoming like Christ. He is making us holy. Paul qualifies his statement here. He says that we're not all being made perfect at the same time, or at the same speed, I'm sorry. We aren't all magically perfect right at conversion. No. It's not a microwave. It's a crock pot. It's a slow process. 
happening over time. As the Swahili people say, pole pole. They say it about everything. Because life is slow, slow there. They say, oh, you'll get there, pole pole. Slowly by slowly. And that's how we're being sanctified. Think of a tall staircase. All believers are on the stairs, but we're not all on the same stair at the same time. That's why even though on some level we're all becoming like Christ, Paul still tells the Romans, we must continually renew our minds. We must continue up the stairs or the world will entice us and pull us down. The further we get up the stairs, the farther the world is and the less hold it can have on you. So how do you renew your mind? How do you not be conformed to to this world? By beholding Christ. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to fight the fight of faith. So now that we are believers and the veil is lifted, we are beholding the glory of God, which is the holiness of God made manifest. And we are becoming holier and holier. We are becoming more like Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Number four, and this is all because of the Spirit. In the end here of verse 18, Paul blatantly says this, even though our minds skim over this all the time. We just jump past. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What does? All of it. The unveiling You're beholding, you're transforming. It's not something that preachers just tack on to the end of sermons to make them spiritually, especially like us reformed people because we're always accused of ignoring the Spirit so we got to say something about the Spirit. No. This is the Spirit's work. Okay? The Spirit is our source. If you've been a Christian for more than a minute, you know that it is literally impossible to do these things on your own. To be like Christ. To love God. Especially to love people. We need help. That's the Spirit's job. I want to show you here how, persi- how pervasive the Spirit's work is and how we end up frequently just skimming over it. Jesus says that the Spirit is coming to glorify Him. Connect these things. The Spirit is coming to reveal the holiness of God. He's coming to manifest God's holiness in us, in this world. John 16, 13 through 14 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus, He will glorify me. The Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. It's to make Him known. And one way that He does that is through our sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God chose you. But He didn't leave it at that. He didn't stop at that. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to pick you for my team, mate. But then, you know, it's up to you to you know, work on you know, getting to heaven. It says, through sanctification... By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Titus 3.5 
He saved us. It never says you saved yourself, by the way. <laughs> you did this or you did that. No. It always says He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, another word, regeneration. That's not a word that Calvinists made up. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is in charge of regeneration. He regenerates us so we are able to see. He lifts that veil so we're able to see. We can see clearly this is not just an addition to the end of the verse, like the closing of a letter. It's a primary theme in the New Testament. The Spirit's role is to point to Jesus and glorify Him. And one way He does that is be right is by regenerating and sanctifying scumbags like you and I, who had no hope. So when the world sees us, they say, Wow, that guy was a dirtbag! <laughs> but look at him! He's really nice. And ultimately, God is made known to the world. Because you know who does that kind of stuff? God. And they know it. Because they see all their other co-workers and they say you. And they know the difference. So let's get practical. We know that the Spirit is working in us. To make us like Christ. We know that we are also commanded to work out our salvation. We are commanded to obey Christ's teachings and we are commanded to be be holy. At the same time we are being made holy. The Spirit is working yet we have a responsibility. We are called to follow Jesus and become like Him. And we are told that beholding His glory makes us more like Him. So how do we intentionally behold God's glory as believers? I've just listed some ways in your notes. We'll just go through them quickly. If you want to go online, you can see my notes about all the verses that I put next to them. But I'm just going to talk about them. Right? We're beholding His glory as if gazing in a mirror, right? First place, creation. I mean, the Bible talks about that all the time. God's glory is revealed in creation. We are beholding His glory. Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see God's glory all around us in the things He's made. So, go for a hike. Walk around your neighborhood. You know, enjoy creation and behold His glory. The Word of God, Jesus. The Word of God is Jesus. Jesus is literally the Word of God. John 1.14 The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And... We have seen His glory. When we read the written Word, 
We are beholding Jesus. His attributes and His nature are being manifested to us and the Spirit reveals Jesus' glory to believers through that. Number three, preaching. Paul says in chapter four, we proclaim the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We proclaim the glory of God. Preaching is how people primarily receive that light of knowledge. When the word is preached, God's attributes and nature are being exposed and taught. Therefore, God's glory is being beheld. Um, Paul makes a great case for that in Romans 10. Preaching is proclaiming the word of God in Christ. For the Lord's Supper, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. We behold Christ in the Lord's Supper. I find this really fascinating. Back in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, God was establishing the old covenant with Israel. And as God was covenanting with his people, we read in 24.11 that they beheld God and ate and drank. This was a foreshadow of what was to come. Then in Luke 22, Jesus is informing his disciples he's about to die on the cross and establish a new covenant. And while he's doing this, what are his disciples doing? Eating and drinking and beholding Jesus, his glory. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Then he commands us to do this and remember him and the work he did. And each time we do, we are beholding his glory. Five, spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, meditating on scripture, evangelism, worship. These are all ways we are beholding and giving glory to God, revealing to the world who God is. His holiness is being manifested in those ways. Like Kyle said earlier, we now have the ability to enter the Holy of Holies through the Spirit. The Holy of Holies was where God's presence dwelt on earth. Now when we draw near to God through spiritual disciplines, we enter into God's presence, therefore beholding His glory. I conclude. Paul is saying that the gospel we have now in Jesus Christ, this new covenant, is far more glorious than any other covenant in history. If the old law was so glorious and it was the ministry of death, how much more glorious is the gospel of freedom? But it's only freedom and hope and life to those who have the veil removed. Unbeliever, I hope there is one question burning in your soul. How can I have this veil removed? The answer we've already learned. It's in Christ. In Him only can the veil be lifted and the gift of faith and repentance be given. There is a reason it's in Christ. Because a lot of people say, God, 
or spirituality or faith. The Bible makes it abundantly clear over and over and over that veil is only lifted by Christ. Through Christ. And it's a gift. Ephesians 2.8, we know. So cry out to Christ. Repent. Place all your hope and trust in Him. Plead for the gift of faith to have the veil removed so that you can see Christ as wonderful. And then God promises He will save you. Believers, rejoice because the veil has been lifted and now we are able to see God's glory as glorious. We are becoming like Christ and we will be glorified with Him in heaven, worshiping for eternity. And even now we are being made like Christ through the work of the Spirit. What a promise we have here in Christ. All unveiled faces by beholding His glory are becoming like Christ because of the Spirit. So the bottom line is this. You become what you behold, right? So what is it are you beholding the most? How much time a day do you give to beholding Christ? How much time a day do you give to beholding the world? Are you displaying the evidence that the Spirit is working in you? Would people around you say that you are noticeably becoming more like Christ? How about your family? What would they say? We're given the opportunity now to behold Christ in His suffering at the Lord's table. Use this time to examine your hearts. Again, if you're an unbeliever, cry out to God and ask for His mercy. Throw yourself at the King's feet. Relinquish command of your life. Acknowledge that He is the King and you are not. Commit to following Him right now. Repent and trust in the Savior. And if you're a believer, confess your sins. Come clean before God. Behold His glory in His death. Let the Spirit work. Let Him give you strength to commit your whole being to Him and commit to spending each time, each day, beholding His glory.